This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome to this 2021 Homecoming panel. My name is Dan Lindheim. I'm the faculty director of the Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement of the Goldman School of Public Policy. Center was created by the class of 1968 for its uh, 40th reunion. Some classes give benches. This class gave a center. Center's fundamental tenet is that real political participation coupled with meaningful political public debate is crucial for democracy. The center focuses on preparing leaders to engage people across the many divides to find solutions for pressing public policy issues. In our pursuit of productive and civil debate, we typically present panels involving people of disparate views. Given the relatively short time for this year's homecoming events, we decided to have a single more in-depth conversation with somebody of interest to the Berkeley community. So we have invited Calgrad and Berkeley Mayor Jesse Areguin. Before we get to this conversation, I want to take this opportunity to welcome and introduce my dean and the new Dean of the Goldman School, David Wilson. This is his first Berkeley homecoming. Dean Wilson is a political psychologist. His scholarship focuses on the psychology of political opinion about policies, contentious social issues, and political figures. Before coming to Cal, Dean Wilson was faculty member and administrator of the University of Delaware. And prior to that, he was a senior statistical consultant researcher at the Gallup organization. Dean Wilson received his MPA in policy analysis and PhD in political science from Michigan State University. Welcome to Cal and welcome to Homecoming, Dean Wilson. Professor Lenheim, thanks for that. So, so first I wanna say welcome to Homecoming 2021. We're so pleased that you took time to join us uh, this afternoon and this evening. I only wish we could have been doing this in person. As Professor Lenheim mentioned, I'm new to Cal. I just arrived here three months ago in July. I decided to come to the Goldman School for all the reasons that you know so well. One, Berkeley's outstanding reputation as the world's leading public institution of higher education. And I hope you all saw that Forbes named UC Berkeley the number one institution in its list of America's top colleges. Secondly, I was attracted to the university's deep commitment to its public mission, which is to serve the state of California, its residents and society in general. And it does so by providing an intellectual environment that pushes us to make a difference in the world. Third, I was impressed by the Goldman School's consistent number one ranking for policy analysis. It's an accomplishment that can largely be credited to our outstanding faculty who are consistently pushing the boundaries of knowledge. And fourth, of course, there's the weather. Now, while it's about 80 degrees outside right now, usually you get about three seasons every day, and that's something to brag about. So I'm excited to to lead the school into a new era of excellence and prominence where we not only train the next generation of policy leaders, but where we play an outsized role in influencing policy debates and practice through innovative thinking, impactful learning, and groundbreaking research. The Goldman School Center for Civility and Democratic Engagement embodies what sets us apart, which is our dedication to fostering public conversations that inspire our continuing need to have dialogue across differences. As a Cal Berkeley alum, I imagine that the mayor attended this university in particular because he wanted to make a difference. And throughout his term, he's shown true public leadership. Indeed, Cesar Chavez would be proud. 
Mayor, as a city's top public servant, you literally personify Cal's mission, walking the walk every day, leading by actions rather than mere words. You're the kind of policy leader that can inform and inspire Berkeley's residents, but also our students. And we're all looking forward to learning more about what motivates you, what inspires you, and what influences your work, and a little bit about what keeps you up at night. So thank you for joining us today. I hope this is just the beginning of many new opportunities opportunities for us to get together and partner with the Goldman School, and I look forward to more conversations. For now, everyone have a safe and enjoyable homecoming, and go Bears. Thank you. Thank you, Dean Wilson. Calgrad Mayor Jesse Adeguini was elected Berkeley's 22nd mayor in 2016, and he was reelected in 2020. He's the first Latino and youngest person elected mayor in a century. He was previously a two-term member of the Berkeley City Council. He's the president of the Association of Bay Area Governments, ABAG, and sits on a number of other regional and statewide bodies. As mayor, the mayor is the president of the Berkeley City Council, and he's been particularly active in the areas of housing and homelessness and public safety, as well as a range of city university issues. This is homecoming, so let's get started with how you got to Cal. Well, first of all, thank you, Dan, for that introduction. And uh, thank you, Dean Wilson, for those kind words. And look forward to working with you and the Goldman School and really bridging the gap between the city and the university. I think there's so much opportunity for us to collaborate and advance um, uh, not only innovative public policy, but serve the needs of the Berkeley community. And, you know, what drew me to Berkeley was its mission and its history as a center for political activism and uh, creating social change. And uh, just going back to uh, my beginnings, um, I am the son and grandson of migrant farm workers that worked in the fields of the Central Valley and lived in labor camps and faced exploitation. Um, growing up in a working class household in San Francisco um, and, and really um, you know, being inspired by current events and social movements, I developed a, a social consciousness and a real desire to to fight for social change. And at that time, this was uh, 1994, we had a governor named Pete Wilson who had put on the ballot a ballot measure called Proposition 187, which intended to deprive uh, immigrants from being able to access uh, education, healthcare, their public services, um, and really um, ran for reelection on a campaign of demonizing immigrants and creating divisions in our state and in our country. Um, certainly we can fast forward to, you know, the last four years and we've had a president and administration that has advanced similar, similar rhetoric and similar policies. And so, you know, all the different, uh, social movements that were happening at the time, the fight against apartheid in South Africa, the fight for farm workers' rights, the fight to protect our, our undocumented community inspired me to, um, dedicate my life to fight for social justice and to use my voice, um, and, and to, um, uh, to, to dedicate my life to, uh, to advocate for change. Um, and ultimately that brought me to Berkeley. Um, and I was really inspired by the free speech movement, by the anti-war movement, by the anti-apartheid movement. And, you know, I often say this, that in Berkeley, I, ideas start here and movements are born here. And we have a history of innovation and, 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 and political action. And that's a foundation that I, 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 I'm trying to build upon as Mayor Berkeley and to really build on our legacy of creating social change. So, you know, I came to Berkeley um, as an undergraduate, uh, 
over 15 years ago. Time flies. And um, got involved in the issue of the day, which is the issue of the day now, our housing crisis. And at that time, this was after the, the dot-com boom, rents were skyrocketing in Berkeley and housing was scarce. Many of my friends and, and myself certainly had difficulty finding affordable and available housing in Berkeley. And so I got involved in efforts to not only um, lobby the university to build more housing for students, um, but also to um, advocate for uh, housing projects and housing policies um, that could serve the needs of, of the broader Berkeley community. And that led me to serve in a number of boards and commissions as a student at UC Berkeley, including being elected to our Rent Stabilization Board, which is a it's a elected office that actually runs our local rent control program. Um, in 2008, um, about a year after I graduated from UC Berkeley, um, I ran for the Berkeley City Council representing downtown Berkeley. Um, and at that time, I was the youngest person ever elected to our city council and remained the first Latino ever to serve on our city council. That record of the youngest person was broken by um, my former intern, now city council member, Rigel Robinson, who represents the campus area. And I hope that we are going to be opening the door for more young people to serve on the city council and to serve in public office and to bring a fresh perspective um, and to help shape the future of our city. And so it's been an honor to serve on the Berkeley City Council for these past 12 years to try to bridge the gap between town and gown um, and to continue to advance Berkeley's trailblazing progressive leadership from raising the minimum wage in Berkeley, you know, increasing funding for affordable housing, strengthening tenant protections, you know, trying to advance Berkeley's um, groundbreaking environmental leadership. You know, I really do believe that in Berkeley, we need to set an example. And the public policy that we advance here in Berkeley does inspire action, not just throughout California, not only, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And uh, I really feel like we have a responsibility here in Berkeley to be trailblazers, to, to, to innovate public policy, to advance the critical issues facing our time, which I know we'll get into today. So it's an incredible honor to serve as mayor of this just amazing city. And I'm certainly mindful of our, of our history, our traditions, and the need to continue to move the ball towards um, creating progressive change. So before we get into some of the more substantive issues, do you have any advice for current or prospective Cal students in terms of getting active either in the ASUC or in the broader community? And what opportunities are there to be involved in the city? Well, um, my advice is get involved in your local community. You may be here for four years, you may be here longer, but this is your city too. And it is so critical that students get involved and speak out and you know, oftentimes it's students who, who are helping shape um, the, the public policy that um, is um, really shaping um, not only what Berkeley's doing, but also what's happening throughout the country. Um, and we have um, young people who have served not only in a public office, but also on various boards and commissions, helping write legislation, develop programs to address issues like housing and policing and transportation. And so, you know, my one my one bit of advice is to get to know the city that you live in, um, you know, not only sort of get outside the campus boundaries, but also get involved because we have uh, we 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 have a lot of uh, challenges here in Berkeley and opportunities. And we really need the voice, and the energy and the vision of students to get involved to help make our city better. So continuing the homecoming theme. 
Can you explain to the audience some of the complexities of being Berkeley mayor in terms of hoping, hoping hosting the, the uh, Berkeley campus? Um, you know, there have been recent campus city negotiations regarding the long-range development plan and a spate of lawsuits regarding the increase in the student population. So could you talk about some of those things? Absolutely. Well, you know, throughout the history of the city and the campus, there has been, um, you know, a tense relationship between the two institutions. And that's mainly due to the fact that um, the city grew around the campus and the university is a very landlocked institution. And so in order for the campus to grow, it has to grow into the city around it. And certainly that is the case uh, with the university's recent long range development plan. And inevitably that means that, you know, the university's acquiring property, um, including taking property off our tax rolls, um, is, is expanding into the city. And there are certainly impacts of university growth on our city in terms of uh, traffic congestion, transportation, impacts on our housing market, our, our public safety services, our infrastructure. And so this has definitely created um, challenges um, in, in the relationship between the city and the campus over the years. You know, when I served on the Berkeley City Council, um, there was a great deal of tension between the city and the campus. Um, and when I ran for mayor um, as a recent alum of UC Berkeley, I felt it was really critical to work on trying to improve the relationship between the university and the city. Um, and as somebody who uh, not too long ago was walking on campus and in classes, um, I felt I had a perspective that I can bring to help um, try to improve communication and collaboration between our two institutions. And and certainly Chancellor Carol Christ has been an amazing partner um, with the city of Berkeley. And one of the first issues we dealt with actually in our times um, in office, because um, I came into the mayor's office around the same time that Chancellor Christ became um, chancellor of the university, um, was there was a series of events that happened in Berkeley um, and on campus uh, where controversial speakers and far-right um, groups um, came to Berkeley to challenge our commitment to free speech and at times engaged in violence and provocation. Um, and this all started in February of 2017 and um, continued into the fall. And uh, that really forced the city and the university to have to work together, not only in terms of coordinating our public safety response, but also in terms of how we're going to stand up to these groups that are here to provoke and to challenge the values that we believe in. And I'm proud that working together, we were able to protect the safety of our residents and businesses and also stand up to hate and to also stand up for free speech. Because at the end of the day, uh, we may not agree with what people say, but people have a right to express their opinions. And so that experience of born in conflict uh, with working with the chancellor, I think, helped really create a foundation which this, we can work together. And more recently, um, as the university has announced plans to build new new housing and facilities and, and the release of its long-range development plan, you know, the city and the campus have been engaged in discussions around how the university can help address the impacts of growth on our city. To the point when uh, the city actually filed a lawsuit against the university in 2019 over a project at the Goldman School of Public Policy, actually, um, and that was actually due not to the project, because we want to help the Goldman School expand and, and create housing for faculty and students, but because we were concerned about the university's significant population growth without, without any increase in compensation to the city. And so for, the, for over two years, 
we worked earnestly to negotiate in good faith with the campus to reach an agreement that will create a new era of city-campus collaboration. And so um, in July, the Berkeley City Council and the Regents approved an agreement um, for the next 16 years that outlines not only uh, payments that the campus is making to the city, um, of starting at $4.1 million a year to help pay for city services and infrastructure, but also creating a process where the campus and the city will work together to help um, review and to comment and shape the university's future growth. Um, so that we're at the table rather than on the table, and we're working together to be able to, to shape the future of our community. Because at the end of the day, you know, we're one city. And while we, while, you know, the campus has its boundaries and the city has its boundaries, we have to work together. We have a symbiotic relationship and the city and the campus, um, have grown together and we need to, we need to grow together going forward. So I'm proud of the agreement that we've reached, which actually is represents one of the largest financial payments that a UC campus has provided a host community. I'm excited about the future. You know, just uh, yesterday, the regents approved the People's Park housing project which is actually something that we have been working with the campus on, not only to create needed student housing, 1,100 beds of student housing there, but also permanent supportive housing for the homeless. Because at the end of the day, we want people not to just have a safe place to sleep in a park. We want them to have a home. And so we'll be working over the next year with the university as they're implementing this project to help address not just the student housing crisis, but our homeless crisis in our city. So you took some, there was some opposition to this agreement and could you give some sense of what the city provides to the university? Sometimes people at the university don't have a clear sense of all the services that are provided. Yeah. So um, first of all, the university does not have its own fire department. So we provide direct fire services to the campus. Um, so when there's an emergency call or a hazmat call or any sort of fire related incident, the city of Berkeley provides those direct services. We also coordinate very closely with the university police department. The campus has a lot of properties off the, off the main campus, and certainly many students live off the main campus. And so the city provides direct public safety services through our police department to students and people that live off campus. And there's no question that, um, you know, particularly on weekends, we see an increase in call volume um, that impacts not just our, our police department, but our fire department. Um, you know, we also... Um, there are also impacts on our infrastructure, um, our streets, um, as well as, um, you know, impacts on our housing market. And that's why I really think the focus on housing that Chancellor Chris has really made a priority of her administration and this long range development plan is really critical because the campus has the lowest number of beds of uh, UC Berkeley is the lowest number of beds of any UC campus in the system. Uh, Chancellor Chris said on Wednesday that they had to deny 5000 students who applied for housing because there's not enough campus housing. And we know the lack of housing um, also impacts the broader housing market in Berkeley, not only driving up rents, but creating displacement pressure that is impacting um, neighborhoods throughout our city, including um, in some of our historically um, uh, low-income neighborhoods. And so you know, solving the housing problem in, for the campus solves the housing problem for the city. And that's why I really think it's critical that, um, that we support and work in partnership with the campus on its efforts to build the 7,500 beds the Chancellor outlined in her housing plan at the sites that were that were outlined. And the new agreement is going to really create a foundation for helping work with the campus to shape what those projects look like. But yes, there was certainly controversy over this agreement. 
Um, some people said that we didn't get enough. Some people thought that rather than the university paying the city for the services that we provide, direct services we provide, that we should cap enrollment or that we should require that um, the university build a certain number of beds. Um, and I do not believe that the city of Berkeley should advocate for enrollment caps. I don't think the city should close the door to the next generation of students to get the kind of education that I got. Um, and at, I think we need to be finding ways to work with the university um, to, to not only mitigate their growth, but also to work collaboratively to plan growth in the future. So, you know, it was a challenging, hard-fought negotiation. Um, I'm sure the chancellor will certainly attest to that. Um, but we really, um, I think we we achieved the best settlement that we possibly could achieve, not only in terms of, of compensation to the city for those services that we provide, but to create a foundation for collaboration and collaborative planning. Because it's one thing to get funding. It's another thing to actually work with the university to help shape what those housing projects are going to look like off campus, to take into consideration the needs, the needs and the input of the city and its citizens. And I think that we have created a foundation for that going forward. So let me move to instead of city university, city state. So governor recently signed SB9, SB10. Um, what do you think of these measures? both in terms of their impacts on addressing the housing crises, but also as a mayor where local zoning authority is being somewhat restricted. Well, these laws are in response to the fact that cities throughout California have actively resisted building housing while we have an acute housing shortage. And I'm actually proud in Berkeley that we've been demonstrating great leadership in addressing our housing crisis, not just by passing measures to fund affordable housing, build hundreds of units of affordable housing, pass strong tenant protections to keep people in their homes, particularly during this pandemic, but also to look at how we can increase housing production around the campus and even in our residential neighborhoods. And I do want to acknowledge that while Berkeley is often the first of many things, um, there's one thing that I'm actually not very proud of, which is that in 1916, the city of Berkeley was the first city in the United States to adopt single family zoning as a means to, to prevent a dance hall from being built in the exclusive Elmwood district. Not surprisingly, the people that patronized that dance hall were African-Americans and other people of color. And that's the foundation that our zoning, our single family zoning in Berkeley is built on. We know that racial segregation and exclusion was further perpetuated through redlining and restrictive covenants. And that pushed African-Americans and Japanese-Americans and other people of color to live in certain parts of a city that have less parks and less resources, that are closer to freeways and industry, further perpetuating environmental racism and uh, creating the kinds of health disparities that we see now, which are even more exacerbated by COVID-19. And so as a city, we believe in equity and inclusion. But the reality on the ground in Berkeley is that wh what we aspire to is not reflected and what's happening in our city. And we ultimately have two Berkeleys. And part of why I ran for mayor was to close these gaps, these disparities, and to ensure that everyone in our city has an equal opportunity to succeed. And so this last year, we've dealt with really uh, three um, pandemics, a climate crisis, a um, 
public a public health crisis and a racial justice crisis. And while the pandemic was happening, African Americans and Latinos were dying at disproportionate rates due to lack of access to health care and, and, and these broader disparities and inequities. We also saw the murder of George Floyd. We saw, um, you know, a an awakening of our country to the issue of systemic racism. And I'm sure we'll talk about the efforts we're engaged in Berkeley around reimagining public safety. But, you know, we have systemic racism in all levels of our society, not just in our criminal justice system, but also in education, in jobs and in housing, in our land use policies. And so in Berkeley this year, we launched an effort uh, to end exclusionary zoning by next year and to expand multifamily housing in every part of our city. And so SB9 is actually built on that principle that we need to remove regulatory barriers to allow more housing uh, through in communities throughout the throughout the state of California. And, um, you know, we will see what the effect of SB9 is statewide in Berkeley. Um, it actually will have a modest impact, according to analysis by the Turner Center at UC Berkeley. But the efforts that we're already engaged in that we launched earlier this year to end exclusionary zoning and look at how we can grow equitably throughout our city, I think will have a pretty profound impact, not just in addressing our housing needs, but also in correcting the past mistakes that we have made as a city and building a foundation for a more equitable future. So one uh, one last housing-related question. You're the head of ABAG, and ABAG provides the RENA goals that come from the state to all the relevant cities. Um, What do you think about the new RENA goals? Do you think that they're important? Do you think they're really just about zoning and not really about building? And what difference does holding cities feet to the fire about zoning, but not regarding what they actually build? How important is that in terms of actually addressing the crisis? So uh, just to define acronyms, the RENA is the regional housing needs allocation. And so this is a state mandated process where every eight years, uh, regional governments have to allocate the regional housing need to cities and counties throughout the region. And those cities use those housing targets to update their housing element of their general plan to not only um, identify sites um, where they can accommodate that level of growth, but also to develop their housing policies and programs. So um, we have been engaged the past two years in helping develop the RENA allocation for the San Francisco Bay Area. The state of California said that we have to plan for 441,000 new units in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is a big change from last time. This is a double the number of, of housing units we have to plan for. And that's in recognition of one, the previous allocations undercounted the actual housing need in the state of California. And so the numbers that we are getting now more accurately reflect what the housing need really is. Um, you know, we estimate we need to probably build, you know, probably 1.5 million new homes in the San Francisco Bay Area over the next several decades to address the growing need. Um, it's also anticipated up to 4 million people will be coming to the region by the year 2030. So we, we don't have enough homes for people here now, let alone the increasing population coming to our region. So I think this really matters. And uh, this this is a meaningful way for us to hold cities accountable, particularly cities that have actively resisted building housing, particularly affordable housing, the Cupertinos and the Palo Altos, not the Berkeleys, 
um, and to, to address our jobs housing imbalance because we have a significant jobs housing imbalance in the region and um, to also address the issues of racial segregation in our region. Because like Berkeley, um, many cities and counties throughout the Bay Area have seen similar um, pra- land use practices that have, that have perpetuated racial and economic exclusion. And so now we are required to have to, quote, affirmatively further fair housing in the implementation of the RENA housing element process. That's a new requirement. And it's really to try to ensure that as we're planning for growth and more housing in our cities and counties, that we're advancing broader fair housing goals. The wrinkle this time about why RENA matters is because if cities don't meet those targets, that under a new state law, Senate Bill 35, um, if cities don't meet certain targets, uh, ministerial, what's called ministerial approval will apply, meaning that the city will have no say over whether a project can be approved. They'll have to automatically issue a permit over the counter. And for mayors, um, you know, we like to control um, how our cities are, are, are governed and how our cities grow. And this is a change because it's going to mean that we, local control does not exist. And once again, I think this is in recognition of the fact that some cities have actively resisted building housing. And so out of frustration, the state has said, let's remove the barriers. Um, and also time is money. And the longer it takes for something to get entitled and built, the more it's the more it may not get built and the more it's going to cost in terms of building and also in the rents that are being charged. So this is also intended to try to streamline production and also make how get housing built on the ground because we have a significant shortage. So, you know, this tension between the state and the, and the cities is an ongoing tension that's emerged in the last four, four, four or five years. And unless I think the state sees de- demonstrable progress on the part of local governments, I think we are going to continue to see the state further encroaching and eroding into local control of land use regulation. Yeah, I noted that uh, some Berkeley citizen group is interested in putting some measure on the state ballot to undo this and to make zoning, put it back to being an inherently local local issue. But we'll see if that ever qualifies or whatever. Um, you've been very vocal in terms of supporting reimagining public safety. Well, what are your hopes for what might come out of this process? What, what are the things that you think are most important in Berkeley? So a lot of people who are involved in reimagining, both look at their own communities, but a lot of them are still trying to re-vindicate what's happened in other places the, from the murders of, of um, every person who we've had to demonstrate against what has happened to them, you know, culminating more recently in George Floyd, um, but going back to Ferguson and going back before Ferguson, and so what are you what are your hopes and expectations here in Berkeley? What kind of things do you hope will come out of this process? Well, I think the murder of George Floyd was probably the most visible example of, you know, police brutality in recent memory. And, you know, so many people have died at the hands of law enforcement, but this was so clear um, and so inexcusable that people could not help but be outraged and want to demand change. And I'm proud that Berkeley, like many cities throughout the country, um, responded with a demand for change in how we do policing in our community and also how we are addressing the issues, the broader issues of systemic racism that that sadly are the foundation of our country. 
Um, and so, um, so in response to the national movement for black lives and, you know, advocating for systemic change in um, racial justice and policing, um, last summer we launched an, an, eff- an effort, an initiative uh, to reimagine public safety in Berkeley. And the goal of that initiative is not to abolish police or defund the police, but rather to look at how we can um, address the public safety needs of our city more comprehensively and more thoughtfully. Um, and I, I define public safety not just as a police officer, you know, walking a beat or patrolling in a car, but public safety more broadly as mental health, public health, social services, and violence prevention and, and, and interruption, and policing. All those things are critical to having a safer, more healthier city and society. But yet the focus has traditionally been on a more law enforcement punitive approach. And so what we're exploring in Berkeley is not just how we can better police our city with an emphasis on community-involved policing, getting officers out of cars, on bikes, walking beats, but also how we can look at, invest in alternative responses, um, such as um, a specialized care unit to um, have uh, licensed mental health clinicians and social service workers to respond when somebody's in a mental health crisis um, or somebody who, who, you know, needs to see a doctor um, because that is a more appropriate intervention than sending a police officer. And it does take police time when that could be better spent dealing with gun violence or dealing with more serious crimes, looking at how we um, address um, our approach to homelessness, to to decriminalize homelessness and expand housing and supportive services, and to also address the issue of, of violence, um, through not just um, a law enforcement response, but through a more community-oriented response, through a ceasefire model, looking at violence intervention programs, and also reaching kids early on so that they don't end up in the cycle of violence. All these things are really critical to having a, a more healthier um, city, and that's really what we're focused on. And so in Berkeley, um, we've launched several efforts. Not only are we looking at creating a specialized care unit to have a team of licensed mental health and public health professionals to be dispatched when somebody's in a crisis, a public health or mental health crisis. We're also looking at potential civilianization of traffic enforcement um, because Sandra Bland and Philandra Castle and so many people have died in routine traffic stops. And traffic stops are the most common way that police actually interact with the public. Um, And so by looking at a new approach to traffic stops, we want to reduce pretext stops, reduce racial disparities in bicycle, pedestrian, automobile stops, and also to have our police focus on moving violations that pose the greatest risk to public safety. And so phase one of that effort is actually something we adopted in February to implement a precision-based, data-based traffic enforcement model which is looking at data and focusing on those behaviors, those traffic behaviors that pose the greatest risk to public safety and deprioritizing those those violations that don't pose the greatest risk to public safety. And in some cities, including our neighboring city of Oakland, it's actually resulted in in a reduction in racial disparities of who is stopped. And so we are launching this program now. Phase two is to look at civilization. But this is just one piece of the broader puzzle. And I just, so much conversation has been about defund and abolish. And no, that's not what it is. We're, we're talking about reimagining public safety and redefining public safety. 
And this has got to be a community-wide effort. And I'm really proud that Berkeley is leading the national conversation on this. And we're going to be working hard to, to advance a new paradigm of safety that's really focused on safety for everyone, not just people who have interacted with law enforcement, but also people in the hills, the campus community. Safety means different things to different people. And we need to make sure that we, we create a new paradigm of safety that represents their needs and, and uh, it's keeping our entire community safe. So you mentioned homelessness. Uh, you campaigned originally on addressing the issue of homelessness. Um, how successful do you think you've been? To what extent is this something that a city by itself can really address? Is this really a local issue or a regional issue or a state issue or really absent federal funds? Can you really address it? So what are, what are your thoughts about that? It is not an issue one city can solve alone, clearly. Um, and that's the problem, is that we don't have an effective national program to end homelessness. I want to credit Governor Newsom, who out of every governor um, in state history has really made ending homelessness a priority. And this pandemic, we've seen an unprecedented investment through the room key and home key programs, not only providing short-term hotel rooms, but funding to local governments, including Berkeley, to be able to buy hotels and buildings to create permanent supportive housing. The investment in mental health services and um, bridge housing and shelter um, has also been critical to enable us to address this growing crisis. Um, but, you know, for far too long, it, we've been addressing this, you know, in a very um, parochial, siloed way. You know, we're dealing with homelessness in our city or one city doesn't want homeless people, so they push them out. And then that's some other city's problem. We have to recognize that many, these are our friends and neighbors. In Alameda County, according to the recent point in time count, um, over 70% of the homeless in Alameda County are people that previously lived in Alameda County. These aren't people that are coming from, you know, Utah or Maine. These are many, these people that, that live, lived in Alameda County. Some people that actually work but can't afford the cost of housing. I've, I've been to homeless encampments. I've talked to people. Some people actually have jobs but they cannot afford the astronomical cost of housing in the Bay Area. They're sheltering in vehicles, they're, they're living in tents. And it is absolutely unacceptable that in one of the wealthiest parts of the world here in the Bay Area, with Silicon Valley and the enormous wealth that we have here in this region, that we have some of the starkest economic disparities. And we have, you know, whole neighborhoods of tent encampments. It's, it's absolutely unacceptable. It's a failure of our society. And so, yes, we have to address this issue regionally. We got the private sector's got to be involved, the public sector, the federal government, the state government, all hands on deck because that's the only way we're going to solve this. So in Berkeley, yes, I ran on a platform to end homelessness and really key to ending homelessness is housing. We need to build the housing so that we can get people off the streets into, into housing and into a better life. But we also have to address the issue, the impacts of unsheltered homelessness, street homelessness. And so when I came into office, we completely transformed our approach to homelessness from one that was focused on passing laws and enforcing laws that criminalize people's existence to focusing on how are we advancing a housing first model. Um, we opened our first navigation center in West Berkeley, which is a 24-7 shelter that's service rich and focused on trying to connect people to housing. We've housed hundreds of people out of our navigation center. We've launched outreach teams. We've, we've expanded homelessness prevention funds. We're building uh, permanent supportive housing in downtown Berkeley, 140 units of permanent supportive housing with, and other projects are underway. And so we're trying to address this 
in a multidimensional way, working with our county and state partners, and also in my role as ABAG, working to advance a regional conversation around how can we work together and how can we work with nonprofits and federal and state governments, not only to advocate for the kinds of policies, but the kinds of investments that we need to address this issue comprehensively. And so I think we're beginning to make progress. It takes time. This is a this is a problem decades, decades in the making due to the significant underinvestment by the federal government in public housing. But I think that we can make progress and we must continue to strive to end homelessness. And I'm proud that People's Park, the collaboration with the university on People's Park and moving those 40, 50 people that have sheltered in the park into permanent housing um, is one, one of many interventions that we hope to advance here in Berkeley. We haven't talked about COVID. Um, COVID sort of devastated the world for the last year and a half plus. And it's also devastated cities. And what has been the impact on, on the city of Berkeley and what have been the responses and um, what have been sort of the good and the bad and the ugly of everything that's taken place in terms of addressing COVID in Berkeley? There's no doubt that COVID has transformed the way we live um, and not only how government serves its citizens, but just how we exist. And the fact that we're doing this interview through Zoom and not in person is one example of that. Right. You know, I remember when I got that call um, the Sunday before we issued the region-wide shelter-in-place order. And I remember when I spoke to our city manager and public health officer, and they said, look, you know, COVID's here in Alameda County. It's only a matter of time. We have cases in Berkeley. And like literally a day later, we had two cases in Berkeley. Um, You know, we feel we need to take this extraordinary step of literally shutting down our region, our businesses, our government, um, you know, to help prevent the spread of this virus. And it seemed kind of surreal at the time, you know, that I couldn't believe that we were entertaining this. It would have a huge impact on our economy and the way we live. But we did it because we felt it was necessary to take the early critical step to help control the spread of this deadly virus. And we were the first region in the country to do this. And many states and regions followed our leadership. And I'm really proud to live in Berkeley and the Bay Area where we really, we've followed science. We've taken this very seriously and we prioritize public health over politics. For example, you know, um, just a few weeks ago, we, Berkeley became the second city in um, the Bay Area to announce a vaccine mandate for local businesses. And I visited many businesses in Berkeley. It has not shut down businesses. People were not laid off. It has been implemented. Um, and it, people feel safer. And it, it's one of many strategies that we're, we're working on right now to help deal with the spread of the Delta variant. It's been a difficult time. You know, it's been difficult, not just personally, it's been difficult for our, our city employees. It's been difficult for everyone in our community. It's been scary. It's been a roller coaster. It's how I characterize it. You know, the, the, the science was evolving. The guidance was evolving. You know, we one one week we'll make progress, and then we then we move backwards. I was talking to you earlier about, um, uh, you know, the blueprint was lifted in on June fifteenth, and then just a few weeks later, Delta variant was spreading in in the Bay Area, and that required that we have to change our approach. Um, you know, the the economic impacts of this pandemic on our community, people losing jobs, people facing housing insecurity have been significant. But we took early and decisive action, not just in um, you know, issuing the shelter in place order, but literally the day 
the the day the shelter in place order took effect on, I think it was, it was on uh, March 16th, 2020. I remember that date. The Berkeley City Council adopted our eviction moratorium to prevent uh, our residents and businesses from being evicted due to non-payment of rent during this pandemic, recognizing that many people lost their jobs, have seen a significant reduction in income. And while the state's eviction moratorium expired, yes, expired yesterday, our eviction moratorium is still in effect and is still protecting our community because we're still in a pandemic. We also launched the Berkeley Relief Fund, which was a public-private partnership to rate, which raised over $5 million in public and, and, and individual donations to help provide emergency grants to our small businesses, our arts organizations. We have a dynamic, vibrant art scene in downtown Berkeley and throughout our city, um, as well to provide um, rental assistance to tenants who are, who are behind on their rent. And so we were able to help hundreds of businesses and arts organizations before those PPP loans came in to, um, you know, to, to stay open, to keep the lights on, to keep people employed. And we've helped hundreds and hundreds of, of, of households in Berkeley, uh, many of whom are households of color, um, stay housed um, when they were falling behind on rent due to losing their job, getting sick, reduction in income. And I'm proud that, you know, not only the city, but the community really rallied. And, you know, thousands of people donated to the Berkeley Relief Fund. It was a whole community effort. And just like our community rallied to, you know, organize PPP drives and um, support the homeless and support our businesses, you know. Um, yeah, I think even in the darkest times that we've, we've experienced, I really think the light of our city has really shown. And I'm really confident that coming out of this pandemic will be even stronger, more resilient. We know this is not the last emergency we're going to have to deal with. So it's been challenging. It's changed the way we've lived. But the role of government is to step in and make decisions to protect the public health and to keep our city going. And um, and it's changed the way we serve our community through in innovation and um, using technology to not only more directly communicate and engage, but also to serve our community. I think there's going to be a lot of lessons learned after this pandemic and a lot of, a lot of, a lot of, uh, I think benefits, but also there's been a, there's been a lot of pain and suffering and death. And I think if we would have had a much would have had a president and a federal administration that actually prioritized this, um, a lot a lot less people would have died, a lot less families would have lost loved ones, and we would have been able to get through this more effectively. We're not out of it yet, but I'm really proud in Berkeley that we're making progress. Berkeley has one of the only health departments of cities in California. I think it's the only one of three. Has that made a difference? Has that been a useful thing or has that made it more difficult to coordinate with other Alameda County cities? It's made a tremendous difference, um, you know, because not only were we able to issue our own public health orders to deal with the, what's happening on the ground in Berkeley, but also we got access to, you know, federal, federal and state funds that enable us to do testing um, and also contact tracing. Um, but also we got our own allotment of vaccine, which we've been able to roll out. And actually Berkeley had the first and longest running mass vaccination site in Alameda County at the Golden Gate Fields parking lot that was staffed by our fire department. Um, and um, I just want to take an opportunity to just recognize our first responders and essential workers, um, not just in City Hall, but, you know, the bus drivers and the grocery workers and the teachers and everyone who who really um, put themselves at risk to keep this city going and this economy going and knowing that they could get sick. And that's just incredibly brave and admirable. 
And um, I think just think it's important to recognize that. So yeah, having our own public health department helped enormously um, because we were able to have our own local response. And I just have to say, you know, the beginning of the year when we were starting to roll out the vaccine, you know, I was seeing the statistics about who was getting vaccinated and it was predominantly Caucasian older people. And it was not the African-Americans and Latinx people who were predominantly dying and contracting COVID-19. And there's no doubt that the racial disparities, the systemic racism that we talked about earlier, it's, it's, it's been so pronounced during this pandemic in terms of who has is, who is succumbed to COVID-19, you know, um, and all, just all the economic hardship that people have endured. So I really felt it was really critical that if we have our own lo- local public health department, our own vaccine allotment, our own resources, that we really have to center equity in what we're doing. And so um, we have launched an, you know, an equity program, working with ministers, working with nonprofits that serve our Black and Latinx community, working with um, uh, you know, many di- schools, many different stakeholders to not only educate people about the safety and efficacy of vaccines, going door to door, knocking on doors, providing information, but also getting vaccine out in the community. And so while we may have 80% of our city vaccinated, which is a tremendous accomplishment, we still have 20% that's not. And those are predominantly, some of those are young people, but predominantly older and younger people of color. And so we have a long way to go to not only get that close to that 100% vaccination rate, but to address the broader health inequities that have persisted and been more pronounced during this pandemic. And that's that's a focus of our public health department and having a local public health agency has enabled us to make the equity a focus. There are reports that very little of the federal money for rentals for either the rent side or the landlord side have really been distributed. Has that been the case in Berkeley? And is what is the problem? Well, it, it certainly is the case nationally and even in the state of California. And that's why I think it was a travesty, I'll say that, for our governor and our state legislature despite all the great work they've done in addressing the pandemic, to not extend the eviction moratorium. Not every city like Berkeley has a rent control and an eviction moratorium. And we're fortunate that Oakland and Berkeley and San Francisco and other Bay Area cities have those protections. But there are many cities throughout the Bay Area, including where my family lives in Southern California and the Bay Area, that don't have those protections. And the money hasn't gotten out as efficiently as possible because of all the not only just the, the process of working with counties and nonprofits to get the money out, but the very complicated guidelines and changing guidance about how to access it has made it difficult for people to access this assistance. In, in Alameda County, the county working with nonprofits is administering this federal money. We got our own money um, as, a, um, as a federal block grant recipient. And we, like I said, we put millions of dollars through the Berkeley Relief Fund and the General Fund to expand emergency rental assistance through our housing retention program. So we created our own program. We didn't want to wait for the federal government or state government to get their program in place. And that was really critical, not just launching that program at the start of the pandemic, but further supplementing it. And we're going to continue to supplement it because we know that at some point, whether it's yesterday or whether it's five months from now, we're going to face a cliff. And the question is, are we going to provide a cushion at the, at the bottom of that cliff for all these people who live in our cities who are all of a sudden going to owe thousands and thousands of dollars and may end up being pushed down the street? 
We have seen an increase in unsheltered homelessness during this pandemic, no question. And we don't want to see more people becoming homeless. So I think this is one of the biggest challenges that we face, this and how we get people back to work. Um, and also, how do we live with the reality that COVID is going to be with us for a long time? Um, not just personally, but how, how do government agencies function in a way where we're constantly having to respond to an emergency? I think these are the kinds of things that we're beginning to think about and plan for um, as we are hopefully, you know, making progress in addressing this pandemic. So my final question is, you talked about institutional relationships between mayor and chancellor, but what are your thoughts about how the campus and the city can work together? How can, in theory, there's vast amount of expertise on campus. Um, there are a vast number of problems in the city. What are your thoughts on how the campus could be useful to both to be useful and also be involved in helping address some of the city issues? I mean, I think there's enormous opportunity. Unfortunately, because of that tension that's historically existed, um, there hasn't been the opportunity to deepen collaboration. But we're beginning to do this. For example, you know, Berkeley has one of the highest racial achievement gaps of any city in the state of California. And uh, 2008, we launched a collective impact initiative called the 2020 Vision for Children and Youth that brought the city the university, UC Berkeley, our community college system and community stakeholders together to address um, our opportunity gap in our schools. And I call it an opportunity gap. It's not an achievement gap alone. It's an opportunity gap because you have to look at not just academic achievement, but you also, in order to ensure student success, you have to address the, um, indicate, the social indicators that impact student success, whether it's jobs, housing, criminal justice system, restorative justice. And so we have been doing this in a comprehensive way. And the university has been a critical, critical partner. And the former dean and, and, and also the school of, of the, grad, the Graduate School of Education has been actively involved in providing research and support to the city of Berkeley. Um, the chancellor has provided financial support to this initiative. That's just one example. Another example is in the area of public policy development. We have one of the best public policy schools in the world, the Goldman School of Public Policy. We need to tap into that intellectual talent to help solve problems around public safety and infrastructure and housing. Um, also, you know, the opportunity that we may have at People's Park through the creation of permanent supportive housing and an interdisciplinary clinic with the School of Social Welfare, School of Public Health to provide clinical services and and case management and public health services to the unhoused, formerly unhoused people that are living in that building seems like a, it's a really innovative, groundbreaking thing. And I'm really excited about that model. So I think there's so much opportunity and potential. We just got to put down our swords and try to find a way to work together and work towards common goals. We also need to make sure we hold the university accountable for its commitments as well. So, Mr. Mayor, Jesse, I want to thank you very much for participating in this homecoming discussion. Um, I think that this will be motivation for a large number of students and pers prospective students to know that there actually is a path forward and not in very long period of time that people can be active while they're students and can actually seek public office shortly after being a student. Um, or in some cases, even while being a student. And so I want to thank you for what you do. I want to thank you for 
um, the motivation that you can provide for students and um, look forward to working together. So thank you very much. Thank you, Dan.